How should liberals think of social injustice? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Jacob Levy. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Jacob Levy. Jacob is Tomlinson Professor of Political Theory, Professor of Political Science, and Associated Faculty in the Department of Philosophy at McGill University. His areas of research include liberal and constitutional theory, federalism and local self-government, multiculturalism and nationalism, freedom of association, and the history of political thought, especially centered on the 18th century and Montesquieu. Jacob is also a senior fellow at the Institute for Humane Study. He is the author of many articles and books, including Rationalism, Pluralism, and Freedom, and The Multiculturalism of Fear. Of course, Jacob has also been on The Curious Task with me twice before, and we definitely encourage you to check out those conversations too. Jacob, welcome back again to The Curious Task. Thanks for having me back again. Great to have you on. So Jacob, our question today is, how should liberals think of social injustice? This topic is very timely, I think, for many different reasons, and even for people that identify themselves to some degree with the classical liberal lab- label. I think it's safe to say there are a wide range of opinions out there on, on this topic and, and this sort of terminology. But to me, I think a lot of the problem on this topic starts with people assuming others are on the same page with certain terminology and when things are thrown around in conversation. So I, I want to parse through this slowly. So let's start by doing that by me asking you, before we talk about social justice and even injustices, let's talk about what you mean by just social justice first and where you think the conversation is at in sort of political spheres and and what you think we should be thinking of when we think of social justice. So there are two, I think, debates and discourses and languages about social justice, the connection between which is not entirely obvious, and they've created some confusion in classical liberal circles about how to engage with this problem. The, the, the most widespread and familiar use of social justice as a phrase or concept in academic political theory or political philosophy is as a synonym for something like distributive justice. And that is what Hayek wrote against in volume two of Law, Legislation, and Liberty, um, which is subtitled The Mirage of Social Justice. What he's critiquing there is something like the idea that total distributions of wealth or income, total distributions of resources at a societal level, and that's where social comes in, total distributions of resources at a societal level can be understood as either just or unjust. Because, according to Hayek, Justice is an attribute of actions, and actions require actors, which is to say individual persons. So justice is, uh, justice is something that we can attribute to something that someone does, not to something that arises. It is important to note, against some other strands in classical liberal or libertarian thinking, that this is not an argument that says the distribution of resources that arises on an appropriately free market is just. Hayek's view is that it is neither just nor unjust. It is the wrong kind of thing. 
to be just or unjust. This was, this looked on its face like a critique in particular of the distributive theories of justice that had been published just a couple of years before by John Rawls in his theory of justice. Hayek then said in the same book that he thought his dispute with Rawls was mainly terminological and then people were more confused than they were before because if Rawls wasn't the target, then people weren't sure what the target was or whether the target had any real purchase in academic political theory or political philosophy. At the same time, people weren't convinced, and in the end, I think rightly weren't convinced, that Hayek was right in his description of his relationship to Rawls. He was mainly engaging with articles that Rawls had written in the 60s. He had either not read or not carefully read Theory of Justice in 1971. And so he didn't understand how far Rawls had moved in the direction of a theory of society-wide distributive justice. In the 2010s, roughly, when, uh, uh, when classical liberal and libertarian thinkers on the left side of that spectrum, people like John Tomasi and David Schmitz and their students and associates uh, started working in the fields that came to be referred to as either bleeding heart libertarianism or liberalitarianism. That sense of social justice was picked back up and put right into the middle of debates within classical liberal political theory. Tomasi famously framed his free market fairness as a book arguing for the compatibility of free markets and social justice. Social justice there meant Rawlsian social justice. So that's one discourse, one set of debates. Uh, and of course, there were libertarian critics of the move that Tomasi and others were making to try to reinvigorate or to incorporate Rawlsian social justice. But that, that's one debate. A substantially different debate arose over the course of the 2010s, a substantially different usage of the phrase social justice. And that justice not about the distribution of resources, but justice about what in an earlier generation of political theory was referred to as recognition. We're familiar by now, we're all far too familiar with the phrase social justice warrior. What is a social justice warrior? A social justice warrior is someone with a set of views or a constellation of attitudes about the fights against racism, sexism, um, heterosexism, or heteronormativity, and so on. Identity-based claims about politics and political recognition and marginalization. Now, that sense of social justice really isn't just distributive justice. And there are disputes on the left about the relationship between what's understood to be income-based or wealth-based or class-based understandings of what justice requires and identity-based or social justice-based understandings of what uh, justice requires, where the emphasis is less on income or wealth redistribution or a change in the political economy of the state and more in um, shifts toward fuller inclusion and fuller recognition for 
mar previously marginalized peoples, ethnic and racial minorities, women, gays, lesbians, and trans people, and so on. Now, a lot of classical liberals have a, an instinctive or not actually not instinctive, a, a kind of cultivated revulsion at that kind of thing. Um, it's what now in 2020, 2021 gets referred to as wokeness and uh, the, the debate that had been generated about how classical liberals ought to think about social justice in the income sense mostly hasn't spilled over into any live debate about how classical liberals ought to think about social justice in this sense. Instead, the loudest voices among classical liberals uh, are prone to treat the rise of wokeness and of social justice warriors as necessarily and intrinsic a threat to liberalism and to, to liberty. Uh, so, so those are the senses of the word that I think are in play and the kind of state of debate of, about them in classical liberal circles. I have a couple more questions to drill deeper into many of the points you brought up there, but just before we drive, dive right into that, just another sort of question to throw back at you based on some stuff you were saying towards the end end of your framing there. Um, do, do you feel that there has been a disproportionate focus on, if you will, the, the economic side of the like an equation in many conversations, and obviously in classical liberalism in general, but specifically when it comes to social justice, it seems that when these conversations starts for a variety of reasons, we're always reverting back to, again, the distribution of wealth and income and so on and so forth. And although the conversations uh, in these circles may touch on other things like, you know, the, the injustice of, for instance, some state corruption here and there kind of thing. Uh, overall, it seems like the conversations always pull back to, to income, whether it's somebody saying uh, that there's a problem with the distribution of income or it's somebody, as you said, re reflexively uh, countering someone else's claim of, so of a social injustice. It always seems to get tied back to income and econo the economic side. Um, that's my sense. Of, I'm not sure if you have anything to add to that or if you agree or disagree. I just want to hear your thoughts on, on that sort of scatter or that I just threw out there. It's going to be different in different circles in different contexts. I, and I wouldn't want to say that the whole, whatever, four decades uh, worth of debate about Rawls and about Hayek's critique of social justice and about Nozick off to the side uh, uh, arguing for a, a different kind of theory of justice in acquisition. I, it's not that I think that that was all just paying attention to the wrong places. I do think that it introduced some distortions into the way that political theory and political philosophy framed political and ideological debates. Uh, those, those debates were philosophically important. I think they were misleading to people who thought that they were a good stand-in for the whole world of political disagreement. As if basically the choices in the world were minimal state activity or state activity to improve the economic status of the worst off in society. That's not the choice in really existing politics. In really existing politics, states do mostly things that are not about improving the well-being of the worst off. And when states uh, repeal or undo or backtrack from particular kinds of intervention, don't do so 
with an eye toward restoring the justice of an, an immaculately free market. They do so for strategic reasons about who will be advantaged and when and how. In addition to which, of course, that debate completely obscured other kinds of state activity besides economic intervention, including the rise of the carceral state, including the rise of mass incarceration, uh, which was more or less invisible to academic political theory and political philosophy during the decades when it was happening. There's a lot of catch-up work about it now, but if you read academic political theory and political philosophy from 1985, 1990, 1995, the crucial decade of that transformation in the United States, American political theory and political philosophy had essentially nothing to say about that really dramatic transformation in, in the status of freedom, the status of being able to live outside of imprisonment in the United States. Economics is important. The debate between capitalism and socialism is important. The debate between different variations of what happens in a partly market-driven mixed economy, those are important. But there are other important things too. You talked about uh, Hayek and, and, and you mentioned the, the emergent order, spontaneous order. I want to get into that a little bit more, specifically his idea that, um, if I read, read, read his thoughts on this correctly, that you know, in a, an emergent order can, can either be ju just or unjust. Can you get a bit into that and also talk a bit about how you think the conversation on social justice today should address that, that kind of claim? The, the traditional meaning of justice has at its core, the claim that justice is rendering unto each person what is due to them. This finds canonical statements in as, as far back as in ancient Greek philosophy and very frequently in Roman philosophy and law. And the paradigmatic case of just conduct is to repay a debt. That is very straightforwardly rendering unto someone what is due to them. If I borrowed from you with a promise to repay, that repayment is due to you. It is just for me to repay it. It is unjust for me to refrain from repaying it. That has neighboring concepts in things like honoring promises and contracts, promises and contracts that go beyond debts but involve some kind of mutual pledge of actions or goods. Those actions or goods are now due to the person to whom they should be given. And so it is paradigmatically just to uphold one's promises and one's contracts. You only have to stretch a little bit further from that, uh, from the idea of honoring promises and contracts, into an idea of truthfulness. Someone is owed the truth. That is, they are owed not being defrauded, at least. They are owed not being lied to in some senses. And so a rule of just conduct is don't lie, don't defraud, as well as the rules don't break promises, don't break contracts, don't renege on debts. And uh, by, by another pretty short extension, don't use force, don't try to expropriate someone else's goods, don't steal, don't rob, uh, as well as don't assault, don't kill. Those are the rules of just conduct. And that is a core of the idea of justice. Plato's Republic is what we get out of the character Cephalus, who describes in 
in engagement with Socrates' question, what is justice? Cephalus says, well, justice is tell the truth and honor your contracts and pay your debts. Referring, as everyone in the conversation acknowledges, to the, the main traditional way of understanding justice. That gets picked up into the phrase, run to each person what is due to them, in Latin political legal thought, and since Roman legal thought ends up as the foundation of more or less the whole of European, not only legal thought, but thinking about justice, since justice is a legal word, justice has the same root as jurisdiction or judge. It's a word about law. So render unto each what is due to them becomes shorthand description for what justice means in the European tradition. That said, um, those rules of just conduct, those kinds of injustice that I could commit by breaking contracts, committing violence, lying, breaking promises, reneging on debts, uh, those rules of just conduct were not treated as the whole of justice in certainly in Plato's Republic, which is, uh, goes on for many hundreds of pages, why a very different vision of justice from Cephalus's is the right one. Not in Aristotle, who treats that kind of justice, commutative justice, as one of two central pieces of justice alongside something that gets translated for us as distributive justice, though it doesn't mean quite, it doesn't mean quite the same thing as it does in Rawls. And not for all of Roman and post-Roman political and legal thought. What is due to someone is a big concept. It is not limited to uh, what is due to them under contracts or promises, nor is it limited to uh, what is due to them being refraining from particular active kinds of wrongdoing. People can be due things for a variety of reasons. And so the idea of justice from Plato and Aristotle onward and throughout all of the Roman uses of the word justice, the idea of justice calls to mind something bigger as well. I can be due my rights as a citizen. What does that mean? Well, it means that some actor, some state official, has the potential to commit injustice against me even though I don't have a contract with them, even though they're not taking my property. If I have a right to vote in an election and a state official obstructs me from doing so, obstructs me from my share in the public activity, Aristotle's perfectly clear, that's distributive injustice. I'm being denied what is due to me, not by some other individual person's private bad act, but by a failure of the rules or failure to respect the rules of the overall political regime. And justice can end up being bigger than that too, as you get into the adaptation of legal concepts into what becomes natural law theory, then juridical images of, uh, of morality altogether become possible. And what is due to me might be my honors, if I am a person of considerable merit. It might be my status and my standing. It might be 
that I am owed something like a good life. Depends on what your theory of merit and desert are. People will start to look back at even a story like Job in the Bible and say, well, Job is a story about the question of whether God can treat humanity unjustly. That's not the word that shows up in Job, but it's a word that makes sense once you've started to think about what is duty as a big amorphous possible thing. And then Hayek's idea as to why when we get to an emergent order, uh, how he at least says um, that uh, that you can't judge that as just or unjust. And I want to hear your thoughts on whether or not that's correct and where we sh- where we go from there in that thought process. Hayek is particularly concerned to rule out the conclusion that inequality of resources, if that inequality has risen on the market out of uh, the the vast number of individual exchanges that happen on the market, that equality of resources, inequality of resources, counts as just. As much as I admire Hayek, and uh, there's a great deal in Hayek's thought that I use and borrow from and teach and think transforms our knowledge, here he's engaged in some pretty transparently motivated reasoning. That's the conclusion that he wants to rule out. He's very concerned to get to that conclusion, and he's going to jerry-rig an argument about justice to get there, ruling out all of those extra things from the whole tradition that I've been talking about as being part of the idea of justice, and stripping the idea of justice down to the rules of just conduct. Now, he thinks that this is a reasonable response to the understanding that he developed over the course of his career of what societies and social orders are like. Because societies and social orders are, in the phrase that he borrowed from Adam Ferguson and used over and over again through his career, are the result of human action but not human design. And if they were the result of human action but not human design, then that means the big complicated fact about a society weren't anyone's decision. If they weren't anyone's decision, then there's no one to whom we can point and say, that person decided it, and we can judge their decision, we can judge their action as either just or unjust. When we remember that justice is a legalistic word, we can at least see the point of this. We can only judge actions, legal or illegal. We can't judge the state of the world legal or illegal. We, we can't go around charging the atmosphere with a crime. And Hayek thinks that there's something like that impetus to charge a big, complicated, amorphous, non-decisionistic society with a crime when we do things like say that a distribution of income is unjust. Things that once we've seen that social orders are emergent planned, if we appropriately limit our language of, of justice to the judgment of individual actions under the rules of just conduct, then there's just a gap that can't be bridged. We can no longer describe those social outcomes using that normal language. It seems to me that a quick sort of shortcut way of thinking about 
an order that's just or not just for many people is sort of to say, you know, a bunch of just actions at the individual level, you know, add up to a bigger just picture. Or similarly, a bunch of unjust actions uh, in the micro add up to an unjust picture. But in some of your work, um, you've, you've talked about the idea of small changes, small injustices, small things, basically, uh, end up compounding and over time can can result in almost like either a framework or a layer of an overall injustice or, or unjust order that not necessarily is tied to, um, you know, whether or not specific individuals had a bunch of specifically justice-oriented action, if, if, if you will. So, so how do we uh, match that thinking and maybe counter, I guess, if you will, the, the kind of tour of Hayek's thoughts you, you just talked about? So this is, this is an argument that I'm trying to develop. I won't say that I've yet got it nailed down in a way that I think a committed Hayekian is going to read and feel irrefutably convinced by. But one feature of emergent phenomena is that they have traits that their individual components don't share. That's what makes something an emergent order, not just an additive pile. It seems to me that if it's the case that, for example, an emergent order made up of persons acting in their self-interest can have the features that Adam Smith discovered and Hayek made so much of, that our private actors can be led by an invisible hand to promote an end which was no part of their purpose in Smith's phrase then it can also be the case that there are morally less attractive features that emerge, that we might be led by an invisible hand to promote bad outcomes, morally unattractive phenomena that were no part of our intention. What that means is that showing that each person's action was within the rules of just conduct does not necessarily tell us that the overall emergent order is immune to the criticism of justice. Now, so far, that's not an actual argument for the claim of social injustice, but it's, I'm, I'm trying first to break the inference that says, if everyone has respected each other's rights, if everyone has only exchanged what they owned and bought and sold on the free and open market, if there has no violence, no force, no fraud, then there's no place where injustice could have entered. Emergent orders aren't like that. Things can emerge that weren't added there or put there or entered into it by anyone's particular action. Now, that still leaves all the work to do to show that justice is the right kind of thing that could, justice or injustice, the right kind of thing that could emerge, and what it would be about a social order that would qualify it as unjust. But I do think that we can then start to work through some cases. The, the mathematics of comparative advantage, the way that the law of comparative advantage works in an open market order, is that very small advantages, 
even only relative advantages between two actors, two individual persons, how you're going to get taught it in microeconomics, but two broad categories as well. Little relative advantages can lead to wholesale specialization divisions of labor. In canonical econ examples, if my country is uh, considerably better than yours at producing wine and only a little bit better than yours at producing bread, then the efficient outcome and the outcome that we will reach eventually, we will produce all of the wine and you will produce all of the bread and we'll trade in exchange. Now that divergence, that generation of all, does strange things to how we look at social orders, how we think about them, and how we think about their emergence. No one's acted unjustly. And in that canonical description, no one seems to be suffering very much either. It can be shown that both parties benefit from that complete specialization. But say that the two kinds of activity are... uh, hard manual labor, and white-collar work. And say that the initial gap in capabilities was itself the result of potentially a small injustice. The educational systems that were provided to students of one race were systematically a little bit... doesn't even have to be massively better, but systematically a little bit better than the schools that were provided to children of another race. It will follow that in that generation, there's a gap in capabilities that means the lack of comparative advantage will lead all of the children of the first race to specialize in, or uh, lead all of the white-collar work to be done by children of one race, and all of the hard manual labor to be done by children of the other race. That potentially small initial injustice massively compounds. Having developed that way, it can become self-reinforcing. Stereotypes emerge. People come to believe that that accident about capabilities represents some underlying truth. People of one race are broadly speaking, unsuited to, incapable of white-collar work, broadly speaking, meant for hard physical labor. Those stereotypes become an additional reason why children will choose to specialize one way rather than another. The compounding effect can then further snowball over generations. Now, this isn't an example where There was no injustice at the outset. I think it does matter to eventually be able to get to cases where no micro-level injustice can still snowball into very large-scale injustice. But I think this is an example that helps us see that the overall social outcome just can't be immune to the criticism on the grounds of justice. And the fact that so much of the multiplication, so much of the snowballing was emergent, turning potentially a small injustice into a gigantic one, 
that's something that well, we ought to be able to understand better after having read our Hayek and our Smith and our Ferguson. It is useful, it's useful to be able to look at a large scale social disparity and thanks to our understandings of emergent social orders, not commit the intentionalist fallacy. Not say, aha, somebody set out to create this much oppression, this much disparity, this much injustice. We can read that into the evil of the intentions of the members of the dominant group. It actually doesn't follow at all. The way the logic of comparative advantage works is that you will get disparities that were no part of the intentions of the actors. It's just the dark mirror image of the Smithian invisible hand. It seems to me wholly artificial to try to insist that that result can't be criticized as unjust. And if it can be criticized as unjust, then we're going to need some other concept of injustice besides violation of the rules of the individual level just conduct. And we have natural concepts sitting around. We have the concept of social. Once we've understood society as having emergent features, as Hayek taught us. We also relatedly, and this is a little bit more 2010s, 2020s, um, we have the concept of structure. My late former colleague, Iris Marion Young, did a great deal to introduce the idea of structural injustice into academic political theory and political philosophy. And while there are elements of her account of structural injustice that classical liberals are in my view, rightly going to reject because uh, they derive from things that she had learned from Marxism that I think are not right. Her general account that structures can have, can have unjust features that are not traceable to individual level unjust actions because of the ways that actions interact and multiply and compound. That, it seems to me, uh, a perfectly coherent and sensible meaning of structural injustice that also allows us to uh, look at a case like the case I was talking about where small racial uh, differences in initial education lead to massive racial differences in eventual careers and intergenerational income and wealth. That is, that's meaningfully a structure. That is something like a social institution. And if we need to find a language just to talk about it that is not the individual level rules of just conduct well let's go ahead and engage with the people who talk about social injustice and structural injustice and learn from what it is that they've been doing even if there are going to be distinctively classical liberal versions of it sometimes especially when there are going to be distinctly classical liberal versions of it because i do think the idea of emergence is a powerful tool for helping us to understand social or structural phenomena without engaging in that intentionalist fallacy that Hayek was so worried about. And I think that's actually an excellent place to take our break, so we'll slot that in now. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Jacob Levy today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Amy Willis, 
Andy Crooks, and Ben Hobbs. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Jacob Levy today. So, Jacob, picking up basically right where we left off, we were sort of ending off on structural injustices, and we were talking about Hayek, of course, and the emergent order, and whether or not you can judge an emergent order as a as, as just or unjust. Uh, you were talking about, for instance, a, you know, even some a small injustice at the beginning of a of a line of history you want to trace can have compounding effects, and and we talked a bit about that. But even broadening our context from specific actions between people or, or, or local justices or injustices, I think it's also sort of important to consider that, you know, the fact is that in the real world, we, of course, don't have scenarios where we have societies with pure market workings and the institutions that are just right in some sort of vacuum. So we assume the emergent order that comes out of that is going to be, uh, you know, just relatively speaking. And on the other hand, we don't have, you know, uh, pure totalitarian command societies. On the other hand, where we could say everything that happens there is, is, is unjust. Um, so, and, and you've written about this too. So, you know, you, for example, you've talked about in this uh, essay, uh, with the independent Institute, you talked about, you know, how, how different classes have had different power the quote, their thumbs on the scale at different periods of time throughout history in different societies. I think at least in my view, this sort of adds to your point that you're making before the break, which is that even if someone isn't convinced of your argument that there's even a valid question to be talked about, whether an emergent order can be just or unjust, that order is still certainly, at least in my view, almost always in the real world within the framework of something and a structure we can say is not necessarily purely just. I mean, if you take a trace any nation's history, governmental affairs, my point overall is that the context of this emergent order and the framework and the governing structures and so on and so forth those are usually not considered by anyone, I don't think, purely just to begin with. So here we have, I, I think, three different possible views or three, three, three different views that have had some influence. One is Robert Nozick's. And at the end of Anarchy, State, and Utopia, Nozick, who does think that uh, a social, that, who, who does think that we can meaningfully describe the complete total of outcomes of a free market on which property rights are respected. We can describe that overall outcome as just, provided that literally all of the transactions have been just, provided that literally all of the initial property acquisitions were just. And at the end of Anarchy, State, and Utopia, he says, what, what can we do with really existing histories that look Nothing even faintly like that, where, for example, the economy of a state like the United States is completely based on uh, activity that happened on land that was unjustly and violently taken without compensation from American Indians. What can we do with histories of real injustice? Well, we can try to make restitution in one case or another, but by the time generations and centuries have gone on by the time it's unclear who the recipients would be, who the, the uh, who those obligated would be. By the time it's too unclear to be able to make sense of the counterfactual world, maybe we end up doing Rawls's principle. This is more or less how anarchy state and utopia ends. Um, in order to simulate a just order, 
given a history of injustice that infected it, we might have to abandon this whole theory and fall back onto something like Rawls's social and distributive justice. Hayek isn't going to go that route because as I said, Hayek thinks that the overall order is neither just nor unjust. That doesn't depend on it being immaculately pure in all of the transactions. Hayek can say the following tens of thousands of transactions that helped to generate this order were unjust. They are actions, and we can describe actions as unjust. They violate the rules of just conduct. What he won't do is say that that then infects in some morally normatively significant way the overall outcome, because the outcomes are neither just nor unjust. They're emergent. Then the third way, which is, I think, philosophically not, uh, not attractive, but has very widespread attachment for understandable reasons, is simply to ideologically, in the bad sense, pretend that any existing status quo is more just than it really is, that the injustices didn't matter very much. Because a basic level of conservatism about disrupting existing holdings. Because people who have reached the top in any particular social circumstance like to think that they've reached the top out of individual merit, if possible, and certainly no wrongdoing, such that they don't have to give up their privileged status and position. Or, or at least mo mostly. At, at least mostly. That's right. And this is not only a feature of market orders. This is something that we're going to find in any social order in the world. The people benefit from it. Who are the ones who ha tend to have the greatest power over the question, will it continue like this or not? They will demoralize their standing. They'll tend to say that they have they've gotten there for morally attractive reasons, not actively morally unattractive reasons. When attached to an emergent order like a market society, that means people dress up market outcomes as having moral attributes that Hayek didn't think they had, but that create a widespread sensibility among those who have, those who own, those who earn, that they do so by their merit that they deserve what they have, a conclusion that Hayek, Nozick, and Rawls all rejected. They all denied the relevance of the concept of desert to these kinds of outcomes. But at a folk level, at a widespread, how is it that people in a really existing society think about questions like taxation or redistribution? How is it to think about things like uh, undoing patterns of racial privilege or gender privilege? Those who are relatively advantaged by the existing pattern will tend to be drawn to folk moral justifications that say that they're okay. And so I don't think that there's instinctive widespread recognition that both the systems were always already infected by injustice. Quite the contrary. I think people, uh, people will generally overall um, 
pretend that existing facts are more just than they are. And I actually have a quote I have here from you, and I think it's actually a great place to talk about it here and tie into some other thoughts. You say, the particular entrepreneur, investor, or worker whose incumbent line of work is wiped out by the destruction in, quote, creative destruction, can be said to have can be said to have been injured because no particular person did the injuring, or can't be said to have. This is true enough as far as it goes, but is no more true than that a growing market economy sees the creation of a great deal of wealth to which no particular actor has a decisive claim in pre-legal justice to own. So it, it seems, to add to the, what you were just talking about there, it seems that you at least think it's important not to rush to answer these questions, but at least keep the question in mind that both sides of this equation are important. That is to say that if, if people are happily able to rush to basically saying, oh, well, that industry was wiped out. These are the workings of the market. No one really caused this injury. It's just the way it works. On the other hand, you're saying, well, when we look at societies with vast amounts of wealth, we shouldn't do the opposite and rush to always claim that that is yet either a just circumstance or, as we were saying before, mostly because of merit and so on and so forth. Again, and you've even highlighted in your essay, that's not to say you're rushing to say you have the answer, but you're saying the question is at least valid. That's what I'm pulling from all this. That, that's right. And in that passage, I, I introduced one thing that we haven't talked about, which is the fruits of economic growth. This is, again, something that I think we think about when we're reading Smith and Hayek in a way that we don't think about when we're reading Locke or Nozick, uh, because the market economy is more than just the sum of the individual bits of property ownership. Right. The market economy is a growing, dynamic, emergent thing that creates a vast amount of wealth in spillover ways. It's not just that we have lots of bilateral positive sub transactions. Is that those bilateral positive sum transactions interact in the wonderful, complicated way that we know about, uh, leading to greater pro greater specialization and greater productivity, greater technological advances, greater organizational advances, creating vast amount of wealth, vast amounts of wealth. Excuse me, uh, for people who are in the direct participants to the particular exchange. Uh, where does just conduct get us for thinking about that? I think not very far. If economies were static, if economies were merely the exchanges of existing holdings in property, then at least this issue wouldn't arise. Then those economies wouldn't be emergent. They wouldn't, the overall economic order wouldn't have any features that weren't reducible to the component parts. But a growing market economy isn't like that. A market economy has features that really are not reducible to particular transactions. Who gets that spillover wealth? We can't just naturalize the way that it happens to fall out in a particular society. We can't just say, those who are existing rules reap the windfall, deserve it. We know they don't deserve it, even if we deserve particular market outcomes at all. We certainly don't deserve all that spillover stuff. What's likely to happen? Well, what's likely to happen is that the powerful will grab it. That pre-existing disparities in economic and political and social power 
will compound and multiply because, as it were, there's new resources around to be grabbed. Even on Hayek's understanding of justice and injustice, that's a moment for criticism on grounds of justice. Someone's making a decision. Complicated decision is going to be hidden behind complicated political processes, but it is the case that decisions are being made about how the social surplus is going to be distributed. Um, to the degree that we think a great deal of the wealth in a growing market economy is at least partly like that, that means distributive questions are justice questions for a lot of what happens in a modern economic order. I just want to make sure to, to put a finer point on that last part where you said there, because uh, especially for people trying to understand Hayek's thought about this, because we started at the very beginning of our conversation talking about Hayek, uh, discussing the idea that it you simply can't say whether an emergent order is just or unjust. But w So just to ask finally, would Hayek then view the decisions and maybe some thought processes to deliberately recognize certain injustices and rectify them that in and of itself, my understanding is that you're saying he would not view that as something you can't judge. That could either then be unto itself judged as a just or unjust way of approaching that. He's consistent enough in his terminology that he doesn't that he shies away from using the word justice. Uh, but in a very important passage in Volume One of Law, Legislation, and Liberty, when he's talking about when it's appropriate for the decisionistic law, that is legislation to come in and correct emergent law, that is, in the English case, common law, judge-made law, that arises case by case over generations. His most important example of when legislation is called for and the common law needs to be corrected from outside is in cases of class bias. And he says, it, it is simply obviously true that the common law tends to favor the class interests of the classes from whom the judges are drawn. And so over time, you get compounding, magnifying advantages to employers over workers, to creditors over debtors, to owners over non-owners. Um, and when we become aware of this, this calls for, again, he doesn't use the word justice, but... Um, this calls for a decision to improve, correct, modify this emergent fact of the common law as it has developed with these biases in it. Uh, this, it seems to me, is an incredibly important and routinely overlooked moment in Hayek's thought. This says that he is aware of things like uh, social biases in distribution, even if he doesn't call them social injustices. He's aware of the ways in which an emergent order can compound lots of minor things, because it's not that any one judge makes one decision that says, ah, I'm going to completely bias the employment law of England in favor of employers against employees. It's that every judge does just a little bit. And the emergent overall fact over generations is law that is really rampantly biased in a way that can only be modified from outside by legislation. So even though he doesn't call it justice, I think it's, it's a critically important example for seeing how 
Hayekian thinking about inputs and social outputs in an emergent phenomenon can can still give us grounds for normative criticism and correction. Another sort of layer I want to tie into our conversation for the last sort of swing of our conversation before we go to the formal wrap-up. And I and I do understand that what I'm saying here can be an episode unto itself, so that might not, not be a bad idea. But I want to talk a bit about, um, and we've touched on the word, but we didn't really get fully into it, you know, because we started the whole train of thought here today on social justice. And uh, ultimately, um, you, in, in your essay where you've discussed many similar things, use the word injustice in the title. Judith Schlar talks about injustice and basically asks the question if we should, quote, think about injustice more amply than simply to note the absence of righteousness, um, end quote. Um, and towards the end of the essay that I have really in my mind for today's conversation, I felt a bit of uh, the idea, and I don't want to paraphrase you too much, but towards the end of it where you're basically saying at the very least a good perhaps way to start thinking on this is not to really have to get too much into discussing whether or not we can create or understand fully or illustrate in our minds the socially just order, but rather to start by recognizing specific injustices. Again, I don't want to paraphrase you too much, but I want to connect that back around for the last part of our conversation too. Like, is, is that ultimately a, a good way to move forward? Is, is that the way perhaps it's at least healthy to shift some thinking on this is to seek out injustices and understand from there? So I'm, I'm deeply influenced by Schlar as well as by Hayek. And even outside the context of this conversation of social justice, I think Schlar is right about this. I, I think that in an important way, thinking about injustice is prior to and more fundamental than thinking about justice. I think this is compatible with the theory of moral learning that we get in Smith's theory of moral sentiments, though he doesn't put it as explicitly as Schlar does. Uh, we learn questions about right and wrong by looking at wrongs. And our subsequent account of rights, rightfulness, not not rights in the sense of individual rights, our subsequent sense of things that are right, of rules about things being right, they are abstractions from and rationalizations of our moral reactions to wrongs and harms and misdeeds in the world. That means that we certainly don't want to start things off with huge social macro theories of justice as being the defining moral facts about how we normatively engage with the world. We want to be attentive to small-scale, individual-level, uh, often relatively minor in isolation, harms and wrongs and misdeeds. Some of them will be remediable. Some of them will be suitable for rectification through legal action. Some of them will rise to a level that you can build social criticism out of, even if they are not suitable to, uh, to legal response. But we're going to be constantly moving back and forth between our awareness of harms and wrongs and misdeeds in the world and our theories about what counts as injustices we can do something about. And I think those theories, theories of injustices that we think we can do something about, are more fundamental than the shadow form of them, which are theories of justice, visions of the completely just social order. If that's true in general, and again, created by Schlar and 
by this reading of Smith that it is, then it can carry over just straightforwardly into thinking about social justice. I think that's more or less true to the way that people who talk about structural injustice and social injustice in this more contemporary identity sense, not social injustice in the Rawlsing distributive sense. Uh, I think it's it's true to the way that those ideas have developed outside classical liberal circles in the last couple of decades. That is, we hear a lot more about structural injustice than we do about structural justice. We hear a lot more about, even though we hear the phrase social justice or social justice warriors, what is it that social justice warriors talk about? It's injustices. It's one or another kind of harm. It's microaggressions, small-scale dignitary harms to other people that might be too small to be remediable or actionable. A microaggression isn't an aggression. It's not an act of violence that is remediable by law. But microaggressions can compound by creating emergent social facts about who has what kind of standing and dignity and ability to move through the world. Stereotypes is one example. That's right. There's a discussion in the Schlar essay of a very small-scale injustice that will probably not be comp- made up for, um, but it's an individual of a financial one. Um, someone is shortchanged at the cashier and isn't given appropriate time to make the complaint. If that were being done on grounds of a racial stereotype or a gender stereotype or a pattern of employment and power such that, well, the cashiers and the market owners tended to be from one ethnic group and the customers tended to be from another, microaggression seems to me a perfectly usable word to talk about that. And what Schlar then tells us to do is think about what follows from that injustice even if what follows from it is not an active, affirmative, distributive theory of justice. Do keep track of the ways that those injustices persist and perpetuate. Do you think that a lot of what we've been discussing here today also ties back to other things I've read that you've written and that we've talked about on the podcast before too, that there's specifically in some circles, there's a lot of uh, either obsession or at the very least a disproportionate focus on this idea of, uh, you know, again, starting from that justice perspective and creating that just society, getting the quote frameworks and institutions just right and setting them off. And then you'll have what you need for, for a just society. Is, is it fair to say that number one, this sort of ties back into your warnings and your idea that that's sometimes necessarily a misstep just to think in that area. And, and number two, to say that the flip side of that kind of thinking about the institutions and the frameworks that we live in should be not, o- not only to think about how perhaps the institutions could be close to just right, but also how these institutions, the flip side of this, that is to say, is it's also important to focus on how these institutions that were set just right might roll into other wrongs and injustices, and we should focus there as well. Yes, absolutely. Um, what, why is it that I'm always going on about ideal theory and ideal visions of completely just social orders being the wrong way to do political normativity? Well, it's because I think Schlar's right about these kinds of things. I think injustice and cruelty first, um, they're more morally knowable. They, we have greater certainty about uh, 
wrongs that we can see than about utopias that we can imagine. And if imagining utopias leads us to blind ourselves, forces us to stop paying attention to wrongs and harms and cruelties and injustices in the here and now, um, then that's utopianism in the really pernicious sense. That's the worldview that pays no attention to how many eggs are being broken in pursuit of the political omelet that one imagines on the horizon. Uh, and it's epistemically mistaken. It's, it's just wrong to think that we know so much about that ideal society out on the horizon that we can judge and guide all of our political actions here and now by the standard, is that advancing us to the horizon? We should instead judge our political actions here and now by the way that they cause or mitigate harms and wrongs and cruelties and injustices here and now. And I think that's actually an excellent place to bridge right into some concluding thoughts in our formal wrap-up. So let me say, Jacob, we've talked about a lot. We've explored a lot. Everything we talked about can go in many different directions, and, and we've covered a breadth of things. But let's try and bring that conversation, your thoughts today, full circle, and put a finer point on our exploration of the main question today. So, so let me ask you, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on how liberals should think of social injustice? I think that liberals should be first uh, willing to move beyond Hayek's critique of social injustice with respect to distribution and take seriously the reasons why distributive justice was a, an additional category alongside commutative justice of thinking about justice all along. Um, to not believe that the rules of just conduct wholly exhaust the concept of justice and to assume that there's some good intellectual reason for the 2,500 years worth of Western philosophy um, that treated commutative justice as not the whole of justice. It is good for classical liberals to learn enough from Hayek and to think enough about the rules of just conduct to push back against those parts of contemporary political philosophy that completely ignore the rules of just conduct and that treat social or distributive justice as itself being the whole concept. But for the question, how should we think about social justice? First thing we should do is put Hayek's uh, overt critique in volume two of Law, Legislation, and Liberty to the side, pay attention to that account I was talking about with respect to the reform of common law and the way that in intimate order, biases, unfairnesses, can arise, can multiply, can compound, even if they were not part of or were not a large part of any particular person's actions. Um, then I think once we've made that move, there's no, there's no natural reason to rule the word justice out from how it is we engage in that criticism. There's no natural reason my hike shouldn't be using the word justice to talk about what's gone wrong in those common law cases. Second, continuing to think about distributive justice, pay attention to how much of the wealth that exists in a market order has somewhat indeterminate relationships to any particular moral or political actor. Most of what happens in a market economy is not just moving defined property rights around. 
overall, most of what happens is the generation of additional spillover wealth. And uh, while there are claimants to that wealth, there aren't people with rights to it, not with pre-legal natural rights to it. And so there are going to be decisions to be made. And those decisions call for normative political evaluation, and they provide an, a moment and an opportunity for decisions that are progressive rather than regressive in direction. This is my attempt to put a different kind of foundation under the combination of free markets and social justice that someone like John Tomasi was building toward in a different language in free market fairness. And third, for the kind of social justice that has most of the usage of that phrase today, for the, for the claims of identity and recognition and standing and stereotype often associated with ascriptive characteristics such as race or gender. We should be very open to the idea that overall social orders in, in virtue of their emergent properties can compound lots of either very small injustices or not in themselves unjust actions at all into overall outcomes that we shouldn't naturalize, that we shouldn't say, aha, it just so happens that if, if in this society uh, there's a wealth gap between whites and blacks of orders of magnitude of greater intergenerational wealth for whites than for blacks, because we think that the existing market order must be basically right, it must be the case that that wealth disparity is basically right. Um, cure ourselves of that thought completely. Be willing to look at big disparate outcomes, not with an eye toward identifying the malefactor who wheeled all that evil into existence because we understand how emergent orders work, but to go ahead and look behind those disparities for the complicated sets of phenomena that brought them about with a willingness to criticize them, with a willingness to criticize them in part for their contribution to that eventual outcome. Jacob Levy, thank you very much for joining me yet again on The Curious Task. It was great having you. Thank you so much, Alex. Always good to talk with you. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.